This is Archive Atlanta, episode 91, bonus mini, 1897 Fulton Bag Strike. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lamos. Hey guys, happy Friday. This week has been long. We had one child start college five hours away. We have two others doing virtual school with two parents working from home. Shout out to anyone trying to navigate online schooling because even with help and resources, it's overwhelming at times. And all the technical glitches seem to happen at the exact same time that I am on important Zoom calls for work or in the shower. That happened too. Throw in some big deadlines at my day job and I mean, I just needed an easy week. So what better time to pull a mini episode out of my Patreon page and share it with the masses? Supporters of the podcast heard this back at the beginning of July, but I feel like this history is really important, especially now at a time when everyone is listening and learning with intent. This week, we have the story of the 1897 Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill strike. The strike is all about the racial tension between the working poor of early Atlanta. Instead of banding together to strengthen their union and get better wages, the white poor of Cabbage Town would rather strike than be pegged as equal to black factory workers. Let's start by talking about what's going on in Atlanta in the 1890s. That decade, we would see the highest number of lynchings in the entire state's history. Cotton prices are falling rapidly, which is throwing both black and white rural farmers into poverty. The bull weevil is ruining crops and crashing small town economies, devaluing land, and triggering mass migration into cities. So Atlanta's black population grew by 26,000 people in 20 years. And we've talked about the way that white Atlantans are essentially losing their minds about these new racial dynamics. Convict leasing is in full force, Jim Crow laws abound, and the streetcar is segregated, and black residents from the city are barred from parks and recreation spaces. This is the same decade that the labor movement grows in Atlanta, and that movement, like everything else, is firmly entrenched in white supremacy. When you look back in history with a modern lens, you know that if white and black low-wage workers had just banded together, they would have had way more power. But for poor white factory workers, life was hard, but what they had been taught was that at the very least, they were superior to somebody with black skin. I talked about the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill in the Cabbage Town episode, but to recap the basics, Jacob Elsis opened the factory in the early 1880s. As was custom across the U.S. at the time, you build a factory and then you build like a self-sufficient town alongside it, housing your imported workforce. The residents of what would become called Cabbage Town were from North Georgia and Appalachia. Mill and or factory owners like Elsis were experimenting with hiring African-American workers, especially as white workers tried harder to unionize. In May of 1896, white workers at the Atlanta Machine Works walked off the job when a black man was hired. The following year in August, Elsis hired 20 black women to work in the folding department. So the story goes, he informed his white employees that this was happening, but on August 8, 1897, 200 white factory women gathered outside the entrance to the mill at 6 a.m. With word that the black women were already inside working, they wouldn't enter. When Elsis arrives, a young Miss Brooks confronts him and asks if he will have black girls working next to her. His response, in so many words, boiled down to kind of mind your own business. The women never entered, and they lingered around for a little while and then headed home. Three employees did stay at the mill to teach the black women what to do and how to perform their duties, and their names were Rachel Hughes, Oscar Todd, and Mrs. Bailey. 
By 11 a.m., the women and children in the cotton factory and in the bag factory had walked out. By noon, all of the men had joined them. A crowd growing into the hundreds gathered on the streets of Cabbage Town, teetering on the edge of a riot. There was one lone policeman there to calm them, and he quickly called for reinforcements. Three arrests were made. One was bailiff John O'Connor, who was riling up the crowd. As police tried to get him in the paddy wagon, the crowd rushes to release him. Shortly thereafter, two young boys, Jeff Smith and Will Rattery, begin throwing rocks at the mill windows. In the next moment, an extra police wagon filled with armed officers comes barreling down from Decatur Street and drives into the crowd. By 3.30 p.m., the strikers gathered at the Federation of Trades Hall, which was on Peachtree Street. There, committees are appointed and other trades come to lend their support. The Textile Workers Protective Union calls for a meeting for the next day. Two all-male committees were tasked with finding legal representation and making a statement or demand. Leaders called the actions of the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill a, quote, deliberate attempt to eliminate the white wage slaves from this avocation and substitute black wage slaves because they will work cheaper, end quote. White people did not want to feel equal to black people. Jacob Elsis and his two sons refused to comment or confirm that the black women were still working and or if they were hiring new people. Their claim is that the factory has back orders, they couldn't find enough white women to do the work, and so he's explained in detail. And Jacob says, hey, I've interviewed white women. Most of them turn down the job after learning how many hours they have to work or what their required tasks are. The union's chief demand is immediate firing of the black women. And in exchange, white workers agree to work extra hours to get the orders filled. A reporter visits the factory and Elsa shows them that black employees worked in a separate office on a separate floor. He was not trying to change social order, merely practicing good business. And when the reporter asks him if black laborers are going to take over white laborers, Elsa's replies, quote, I do not mind having my dinner served by a colored cook, but I do not say that they should sit down at my table, end quote. As it stood, the strike seemed to be over and demands met. But that's not exactly what happened. Yes, the committee initially demanded the firing of the women, and Elsis easily agreed to do this. But at the 11th hour, the strike leaders threw in the demand to fire all African-American workers, except the scrubbers and the firemen. Let's just pause there for a moment. I love how there were jobs that even the strike leaders knew no white person wanted to do, regardless of pay. This is still a thing in our society today where the least desirable, most unprotected work is left to immigrant workers. They also wanted a guarantee that no strikers would be punished or fired. Monday morning, Elsis thinks the factory workers will resume operations, he's ready to go, and the strikers show up with changes to their demands along with an agreement that they want signed by Jacob Elsis. And he is not having it. He tells them that these black workers have been with him for 20 years. They have literally nothing to do with the current issue, and they don't work anywhere near white employees. Leaders bring their responses back to the strikers at Federation Hall, and the women claim that there is a black second boss who, quote, orders them around like they own them, end quote. I mean, again, let's just unpack this all for a moment. These are white people living in near poverty in Cabbage Town. They are in a similar economic position to black Atlantans living in poverty. But the ideas of race and white supremacy have told these white people that they are better. Their lives may be hard, but at least they don't have black skin. And instead of joining together with black unions, which did exist in some parts of Atlanta at the time, or even joining together to use their collective power, white workers lost their minds when physical situations reminded them just how close they were. 
Ellis's had no choice but to give in to these extra demands, and on August 9th, the factory bell rang and the strike had ended. He still refused to sign the paperwork, but he did fire all black factory workers and agreed not to take retribution on the strikers. This served to reaffirm white supremacy in the workplace, an issue that still plagues workplaces in the U.S. in 2020. So there you have it, the story of the 1897 Fulton Bag Strike. Thank you all for listening. Remember to leave a rating or review if you've not already done that. It really helps the podcast um, appear to more people and spread the Atlanta history they love. If you want more mini episodes like this um, with more coming, I promise, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash archive Atlanta. There's also a link in the show notes. I hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week.